Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So, AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So, welcome and enjoy. Ustad Dawn Ali Khan, welcome. Nice to be here, alhamdulillah. Zahir, you pretty excited? Yes, no, definitely. Alhamdulillah. Shukran for accepting our invitation and giving us all your time. Uh, Swahan, like uh, Halil indicated, it's uh, it's someone we when we learn from people, we, we like to share that as well. And part of our platform is about sharing stories. Okay. So we're hoping that you can share some some of your journey, especially with our Quran. Yes, shukran for being here. I'm really happy to be here. It's been so, an honor. Our stumbling question. Okay. Who is known Ali Khan? I'm trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> uh, I'm a bunch of things. Uh, who is Nomad Ali Khan? I mean, I think, I, I guess the public sees somebody who uh, is dedicated to exploring and uh, trying to find you know, meaning and beauty in the Quran. And uh, that's kind of become my public face. Uh, there's more to myself than that. But that's, you know, something that has become a lifelong passion. And something I feel very strongly about. And it's not something that's ever... Alhamdulillah, by the grace of Allah, it's not something that's ever gotten rusty for me. So it's only you know, um, gotten me further and further into this uh, area of inquiry. I feel that way because uh, you know, I, I, when I first truly got exposed to the Qur'an, or at least got a true glimpse of the Qur'an, I felt that I was robbed. Being born a Muslim, raised a Muslim, in a Muslim country for the most part... I felt like uh, we don't even know the book that we claim that we believe in and we don't appreciate. And knowing is one thing, knowing some of the meanings and all of that, but we don't appreciate what we have. There's something so rich here and we're looking at it in a, such a shallow and cursory sort of way. And, we, and I felt nobody underestimates the book more than we do ourselves. So I decided to not underestimate the book and um, to make that a forefront of my thinking. And that's, I think that's what's most... Uh, sort of popular about myself, at least online, but um, I'm lots of other things. I'm uh, stretched in many different directions. I have uh, lots of children. I have uh, parents, siblings that I'm responsible for. I'm the only son. I have three sisters. I'm two now. One passed away, rahimahullah, uh, recently. May Allah forgive her. Um, so I have a lot, loads of family responsibilities, loads of financial responsibilities, loads of emotional, psychological responsibilities. <laughs> Um, and then on top of that, Bayina and, you know, some of this travel and all of these things. A lot of times people think because they see so many videos that they think I'm just constantly traveling the globe or something. I, there's more travel this year, but for the most part, I'm home, actually. Yeah. Take us back. How was known Ali Khan in school? Take us back to your childhood. How far back you want to go? Like high school. Let's go high school. High school's bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> high school. Uh, well, high school... Um, so up until the eighth grade, um, from, from the second to the eighth grade, my father, who worked in the uh, Pakistan embassy, was stationed in Saudi. So I went to a Pakistani school, Urdu medium, in Riyadh. And from there, we went to Pakistan for about um, nine months or so. And I was doing most of eighth grade, some of ninth grade in Pakistan. And then he got stationed to come to New York City. So we moved to New York. Uh, this is in 1993. And uh, I didn't speak any English. No. And I was a teenager. And I went to high school in New York City because that's what you do. Public schools are a free service and we can't afford private schools. And all schools are English medium anyway. And uh, New York City public schools are almost as 
diverse or almost as uh, safe as being inside the cage of a zoo animals. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's crazy. It's a crazy place. Um, and I came from a very conservative background, at least school-wise. Respect for the teacher. You stand up when you're called on and raise your hand every time. And assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. None of that stuff. I mean, this place was crazy. It's like, I don't know if I'm in a classroom or a train station, you know. And um, so that was a culture shock. Um, I didn't know any Muslims at that point, And I had to assimilate. I had to fit in. And I saw that there are so many different ethnicities that do the same thing. The Chinese, the Greek, the the Bangladeshis, the Pakistanis, the Indians, etc., etc. They all became New Yorkers, right? And they had to fit in. And so I needed to fit in. And so pretty much in high school, all of... I When I was learning English and I didn't speak well, because every time you speak with an accent, you get made fun of. So I was very quiet, very shy, very unsure of myself. Uh, tried to stay invisible, tried not to you know, gather any attention. Was terrified of people mocking me or you know, making fun of me and things like that. Very low self-esteem. I would look back at myself and say I had very, very low self-esteem. I didn't have many friends. Uh, and my friends were basically the, you know, if, if you ever see like high school type movies, the nerds that are the social outcasts and they have their own table, that was a safe place for me to be. <laughs> so that's where I was, you know. And the cool kids were all, you know, somewhere else kind of thing. Um, and then because we weren't uh, so well off financially, so uh, everybody in my family worked from an early age so I worked with my dad I worked then later on at a, at a store and so I used to deliver newspapers in high school like got up at three in the morning got to the print shop picked up the copy of the New York Times rubber band it and then drive around and throw newspapers in apartment buildings and houses and stuff get chased by dogs and that sort <laughs> of thing uh, and I used to work at a shoe store in um, a neighborhood called Junction Boulevard in New York it was like a, it's a super Puerto Rican Dominican neighborhood I think to this day it's like that so you can't survive if you don't speak Spanish. And I was taking some Spanish in high school also, so I learned quite a bit of Spanish at the time. So to get by, I was, you know, uh, you know, necesito hablar en español. That's what it was. I just have to talk in Spanish. So that's what it became. I, I became pretty fluent in Spanish early. Um, people couldn't tell I wasn't. Um, and then that was kind of my first exposure to learning new languages. First English really quickly, and then Spanish really quickly. And so I became sort of trilingual. It was, Urdu was already there. And then English and Spanish sort of came along. Looking back, was that kind of uh, the forerunner towards getting towards the Arabic? It made it easier for you? Yeah, I think it was the, the, the loads of travel that probably made it easier. We never really settled. Um, you know, a lot of people can identify a place as their home. And when they think of back home, they think of a place. I can't. You know, I was born in Germany. And then my early memories are very faint of Germany. And then... Dad gets stationed to Pakistan, we're there for six, seven months, then he goes to Saudi, and then we move again, and then we move again. Right. So, you know, our childhood, or mine specifically, was always one of where, kind of almost an anxiety, where are we going to be next? You know, and, and even when we go somewhere, we kind of knew that's not home. We're going to have to leave this place okay. also, right? So, uh, and adaptation became a part of that, right? You have to adapt to Saudi society, and you have to adapt to New York City. You know, it's a diff- completely different <laughs> universe. I'm back to picture. So, yeah. So, you know, so that, that I think was a big part of um, language acquisition is just you just learn to adapt to changing environments. Yeah. You and I in high school, um, if, we, if you listen to many of your, your, your talks, you speak about going away from Islam for, for a while and, and having to find 
once you were back at the at campus or at university. Yeah. Um, maybe take us through that uh, period of your life, just maybe leaving high school towards towards university. Um, how did you come back to Islam? If I can put it that way. If anybody else saw the transition, they'd call it accidental. You know, I mean, that's the way Allah does things is mysterious, really. So there wasn't any plan really in place. Hmm. It just happened to be that Allah put some very interesting and very unique individuals in my way. I was averse to people that, what we call da'is today, like myself. Like if I saw myself online, I wouldn't listen. <laughs> like what is this nonsense? <laughs> you know, um, I wasn't interested in the Islamic lecture stuff. And there was one, one, you know, at one point I was kind of at a low and I decided, you know, my dad used to take me to a masjid. I'll just go and see what they have to say. And I said, I feel a lot of sadness. I feel some, I feel lonely a lot. What do you think I should do? I talked to the imam son. And the imam son said, put in 40 days and you'll be fine. And I was like, what is this guy talking about? I'm never coming back here again. So... <laughs> So that happened. That was early on. I was maybe 17, 18 years old. And that sort of turned me off from even going near anything remotely religious. Uh, and Allah put certain people in my path that uh, didn't come across as religious, but were actually very knowledgeable in religion, were uh, devoted Muslims, devoted young Muslims. And I had young and devoted and independent, I had never seen before. If I saw guys, the, my friends, the ones that had money were the biggest partiers. Right? And if they have a nice car and you know money and independence and they're doing their own thing, then you know what they're going to do. And here you had some people that were well off financially, that were intelligent, that are going to university, they don't have parental supervision, and yet they're praying five times on their own. This is unheard of to me. Why are you, like, Nobody's making you do this. Why are you doing it? And then through those friends, I, I got introduced to just this crazy place called the MSA. And I still remember it was, it was Columbia MSA he took me to. Columbia was the, the rich people's school. We went to Baruch, which is a poor people's school. So they took me to this MSA meeting, and they're discussing this, this 20, 30 people in the circle, brothers and sisters, and they're speaking so intelligently. And, you know, I come, my friends, we're just talking about what party we're going to, or yo man, this, that, the other. We're just talking, slang was kind of the normal communication mode. And now I'm in this circle, and these people are speaking so intelligently and so eloquently, and they're talking about how they're going to raise funds to sponsor this one orphan. And they've got a poster of him. And I'm like... I've never met people my age that do this. Like, what is this? I was so impressed and so moved by that. So there were, there were kind of isolated incidents like that that made me think about how, you know, maybe life is more than just living for yourself. There, there has to be more meaning and purpose to life. And that kind of got me impressed with, you know, maybe I should give this Islam thing a chance. Maybe I should learn more about it. But even then, I was a, a skeptical learner. So I didn't take, take anything at face value. It got me in a lot of trouble. It still does. How did your Arabic journey start? Uh, well, Arabic was later. Um, the Islam thing, Still, yeah. one of the earliest people, this is an Imam, uh, Imam Siraj, of course, in Brooklyn. He was very charismatic and very like loving towards young people. And I really gravitated towards him and uh, developed a relationship with him and started learning from him. And he recommended some people I should listen to as a, as a teen. And this is back in the day of cassette tape days, right? Mm -hmm. So... He told me you should listen to uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. So I used to just, whatever money I could save, I bought Hamza Yusuf tapes. And, you know, may Allah forgive me, bootleg VHS tapes. Illegal copies. That's it. This is an illegal copy. Fear Allah. That's, that rolls on the bottom. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know where to get an original copy. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I'll just say astaghfirullah for the number of times it says illegal copy. <laughs> but anyway... 
So I watched a lot of his stuff and I was fascinated because he talked about the root word for this is this and the Arabs used to say it this way. And I'm like, man, how do they know this stuff? I'm never going to learn this stuff. This is way too advanced. That's crazy. I wish I knew Arabic. And so when I heard him speak, I was fascinated with the Arabic language. Like, there's, I know now there's something so deeply missing in translation of Quran or translation of Hadith because Arabic is really rich and translation is really poor. And, but I also felt this massive distance between myself and Arabic. The more these people spoke so intelligently, the more I said, I'm never going to know this stuff. There's no way. But at least the longing for it started then. I can remember that. And then from there, I just uh, happened to meet uh, Dr. Abdul Sami, brilliant translator of the Quran in Urdu. And you know how I have a nightly program here? His was crazy. His was 20 taraweeh, 4 rakah, then a running translation of the 4 rakah. Without a translation in front of him. He's just reading the Arabic Musaf and translating in Urdu. And he didn't translate like a read. He translated like a conversation. Which is, makes all the difference, right? Because when you're reading something as a read, it comes across formal and distant. When you're, reading, when you're saying something, it comes across as a conversation. And I experienced the whole Quran that way with him in Ramadan as an Urdu conversation. And that completely changed what I think about Islam. My, actually, I would say my first proper learning of Islam was that, was actually going through the Qur'an one into the other. Most people don't get that. Most people, even the ones that are learning Islam, going to halaqat, studying this, that, the other, they haven't even read the entire Qur'an. And if they have, they haven't been really exposed to what it's saying as a conversation. And so I was so just blown away by what I had heard and how it was, every day it was shaping my thinking, changing my perspective. And I was a philosophy guy too. So I'd come with philosophical questions and before I could ask him, the ayat were answering them. And I'm like, oh, that's how that answers. That, this, this. And I couldn't even get to ask him because he was answering me before I asked him. And he doesn't study philosophy. <laughs> he keeps it simple. So I asked him at the end, I'd like to do what you do. I feel like this is, this is what's been missing in my life. I don't want to contribute. So he said, okay, learn Arabic. I said, okay, where do I learn? He said, okay, I'm starting next week. Come to my class. <laughs> so I, that was my first... Uh, Arabic course. It was with him. It was a three-week crash course at the masjid. So I'd, I'd go to college, then I'd go to work, and then I'd take the train to the masjid from like 7 to 10 p.m., and then get home by midnight, and then cycle again, you know, for, for three weeks. And he saw... It was just four people in the class, by the way. Right? And I was the fourth guy in the class. And I was really into it. And he saw it. And he said, you, come another three weeks. And I was like, but the class is over. He goes, yeah, just come where I'm staying. So I would go to him every day, one-on-one, and he did the whole thing with me, but this time he would say half the thing and stop and say, you already did this, tell me how to finish it. And he kind of made sure I got those fundamentals from him one-on-one. I'm very grateful for him for, for doing that. And then he left. He went back to Pakistan. I was like, now what do I do? <laughs> you know. So then I had to kind of uh, scramble. I picked up whatever Arabic book I could find. And I couldn't afford much. So I, I, first I remember I bought the Medina books. You know, Arabic lessons for those who don't speak it. And they use it in Medina University for non-Arabs that come in. So I was excited. This Medina curriculum is going to be glorious. I finished it in like three weeks on my own. Wherever I get stuck, I take a train to Brooklyn and say, This was this is before you could Google the meaning of a word. Or like, <laughs> you know, or I could even afford a dictionary. So the Arab imam in Brooklyn was my dictionary. So I'd go to him and say, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean? You know? So I finished it and then saved up a little bit more money, bought another book, 
I, I call it juicing books. Like I wouldn't move to another book until I completely exhausted everything this book has to teach me and then go on and go on and go on. So it came to a point where I was able to read Arabic texts without translation, but I still couldn't speak any Arabic and I still couldn't understand because they spoke too fast. So I remember this was in 2005, no, not even sooner, 2004. I uh, listened to a, my first Arabic lecture series. It was Tariq uh, Suedan did a series in Arabic on the miracles of the Quran. I was like, okay, Quran's my subject anyway. I love it. So I'll listen to this. And I could not make heads or tails of it. But what I decided to do is listen to the same first hour. It's a 16-hour series. I listened to the first hour maybe 40 times. 40 times. I, I kid you not. Until I knew every word he was saying. And my Arabic listening comprehension developed. And then I decided to type up what he was saying in Arabic. And I, I refused to put stickers on my keyboard. So I learned to type Arabic from memory, just struggling through it. Hours and hours and hours and hours. I did this. Um, and that's how I got into like writing in Arabic and listening to Arabic. And then, so I, what I did with my Arabic studies, I, I divided it into milestones. Grammar, morphology, that's a milestone. Reading without harakat is a milestone. Listening comprehension is a milestone. Speaking is a milestone. So I, once I divided it like that, I could focus on one thing, then the next, then the next. And the other thing is, the other part of my focus was, whatever I'm learning, how is it furthering my Quran comprehension? I didn't want... There's lots of Islamic things you can learn. And it, it, where I was living, you could take an Aqidah class, you could take a Hadith intensive, you could take a Sul al-Fiqh, you could take... Islamic sciences are so many, right? I just came, became just blinders on... I just want to do Quran studies. And when I'm satisfied with my Quran studies, I'll look at the other sciences. All my friends were touching this, touching this, touching this, touching this, touching this. And I was like, I'm going to do two things. Arabic and Quran, Arabic and Quran, Arabic and Quran. I'm going to stick here. I want to I really know this before I touch anything else. And that, I think, shaped my thought process and my approach to Islam and my view of Islam. Some people think I reject Hadith or I don't follow tradition. and They're, they're welcome to their claims. I have enormous respect for the tradition. But I think what, what that, that approach did is that it gave me, you know, the, the first thing you learn in a subject, it almost becomes like the blinds or the shades you put on and you see everything in its shade, right? So people who study Aqidah first, for example, they'll see all of Islam through the lens of, does this fit the Aqidah that I learned? If people study Usul al-Fiqh first or Fiqh first, they'll Fiqhify all of Islam and see it from that lens. I Quranified my Islam in a sense. Uh, you know, I want to see it from the Quran's point of view first and foremost. And that that became sort of my, uh, the lens with which I, I see and, and study and uh, appreciate things. Brilliant. Of course, a lot of your work, uh, whether it's on YouTube, Facebook, wherever it is, it's impacted a lot of people. Um, one of my favorite stories, and I'm going to ask you this question now, how is Robert DeVille? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been in touch, to be honest with you. I've been, I've been traveling so much, I haven't been in touch with him. Actually, people, so many people ask me this trip, i got to go back and check on him. <laughs> Maybe let's reflect on his story. What's one of the most important lessons that you would tell youth after that story of Robert Devere? Okay, uh, the most important lesson out of his story is that we're living in, you know, ancient societies used to control people and misguide them by controlling the flow of information. And in the modern world, we can control society by over-flooding them with information so they can't tell right from wrong. That's what the internet has done, right? So there's so many bits of information out there that you don't know what to pick. So the truth disappears either when you control the flow of information or you flood falsified information. And in that environment, somebody asks, how do I know if I'm guided? 
how do I know if I'm on the right track or the right path? And the answer to that is that in the most impossible circumstances, it's not whether or not you're following the right information. It's whether or not you're genuinely asking Allah to guide you or not. And when you do, despite whatever obstacles that may be in your path, Allah will guide you. That's not on you. That's not something that you can control or you can decide, if I do this, 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 then I'll have right guidance. No, no, no. If you truly, sincerely beg Allah, Allah will not leave you. Allah will guide you. Allah will show you. You have to have that conviction. And that's that, that, it's a powerful lesson because people keep thinking, people come to me and say, which translation should I read? Which tafsir should I read? Which scholar should I avoid? Which scholar should I stop? You're asking the wrong questions. What should I be asking Allah is the right question, right? And when you ask that right question, you're going to be exposed to false information no matter what you do. But if you have Allah's guidance with you, you will have the sense to be able to sift through and take the good and leave the bad. That's just the struggle of the Muslim today. If you're going to keep thinking that you protect yourself somehow from wrong information or from hearing something that you might not agree with, good luck. That's just not how the world works. you know. So that to me is the most powerful lesson here. A man who had no exposure, no access, except for divine intervention. So that's alive and well. Allah's intervention to guide people is alive and well. So a month ago, I put my children to bed, four years old and six years old. And then I was, I started reading the story of Nuh and Musa and then I listened to your lecture a couple of nights ago. Uh-huh. And then I realized, no wonder they don't want to read the book anymore. <laughs> so what advice would you give for younger children? I mean, how do you, how do you show all those mercy in, them, in terms of I, stories? I'll tell you something. I'll, I'll share a story with you that inspires me. Before I came here to um, Cape Town, I was in St. Louis teaching the same course. And a couple of young girls were in the class. They were 9 and 10 years old, 9 or 11 years old. And their mom brought them from Chicago. And I hope they don't get embarrassed that I'm telling them the story. But uh, she said that she heard me speak about, you know, teaching Islam to children a few years ago. And I kept saying that you have to reinforce in your kids that Allah loves you no matter what. Allah loves you no matter what. Allah loves you no matter what. You just have to keep. That's one concept you have to drill in your children's head. Whatever good happens, whatever bad happens, use it as an opportunity to remind them that Allah loves them. Allah loves them. In other words, education in Islam early on isn't about information. It's about instilling certain concepts as a worldview. And the most important worldview being Allah loves you. Which basically in tafsiri sense means that he is ar-Rahman. That's basically what that means. He loves you and he cares about you. And his love and care is extreme. She says, I did that and I, I decided to stick with that. And I just reinforced that in my kids every single day. That's what I reinforced in them. And these girls decided to memorize the Quran on their own, study Arabic on their own. I didn't push them. And now they brought me to this class. They begged me to come to this class. And they were some of the best students I had. I actually even did a little video of them doing some of the, the conjugations that they memorized at the end of the class. I put it on my Facebook. I was so proud of them. That's but what, what I'm trying to get at is... We keep thinking about, it, when we think of children's education, we keep thinking about what. Uh, what should they know? How do you, or, or how? You know, so who are the prophets? What was the history? What is salah? What is akhirah? What is imah? Etc, etc, etc. Or how? How do you make wudu? How do you clean yourself? And some of that's important. I get it. But the most important thing in per- Islam is personality. What does it mean to be respectful? What does it mean to be kind? What does it mean to... Listen carefully. Kids are distracted today. How many lessons do we teach them about, hey, when mom's calling, 
put the iPad down, put the phone down, put the game down, put the TV off, turn to mom and say, yes, mama. Like make eye contact because the prophet used to do that. How are they going to learn that if parents don't even do that? Like we're modeling this kind of, you know, lack of mannerism behavior. And we focus Islamic education on memorizing things and ritual behavior. So kids are memorizing the Quran, but have temper tantrums. Right? And we don't give them education on how to manage their anger, how to manage their sadness, emotional intelligence. That's the age to develop that because children have pure emotions. When they feel sad, they feel really sad. When they get angry, they get really, really angry. You know, when they get scared, they get really, really scared. They have extreme pure emotions. And that's the time to learn to guide some of those emotions. What does charitability mean? What does caring for somebody mean? You know, uh, if you take a page out of the, the Quran's hints towards you know, children's education, it's less about talking to them. It's more about listening to them. Like, what, you know, asking them probing questions that gets them to open up. How did this make you feel? What do you love about this? What did Allah do for you today? You know? And what happened at school that you didn't like? And why not? And, you, you know, we have to kind of probe our kids to open up uh, more and more and more to us. And that's, that's the key because, you know, by the time they become teenagers, they don't talk to us. They don't, just don't talk. How was your day? Mm. Where'd you go? Mm. So you want to talk about anything? No. Can I go now? And they're endlessly talking to their, their friends. Because we didn't open a door of open communication early. Now we're in shock. You know, I met a young man here a couple of nights ago who told me he was brought up in a very religious environment and just the madrasa environment, memorized the Quran and like completely conservative, etc., etc. And he's deeply depressed, doesn't know how to make friends, doesn't know how to talk to people and feels isolated and alone and constantly feels that the world's going to come to an end because that's what he heard over and over again. That's not normal. That's not what an Islamic education should do. He should be able to interact with people and feel confident about himself. And, you know, and so I feel that you know, some of the ways that we teach Islam at an early age has a very detrimental impact on you know, young personality and that can affect somebody for life. You know? You're talking about distractions earlier. I mean, we're living in an age where special effects and superhuman abilities are yeah. the rage of <laughs> popular culture. Yeah. So how do we go about telling our kids, telling ourselves, the Quran is actually the miracle, similar to how Musa Alayhi split the sea, the Red Sea. Um, how do we approach that sort of thing uh, with our kids, with our Story and folklore and legends and uh, those sorts of things and things that capture the imagination have always been there, right? Um, people with supernatural abilities and dragons and you know, th these kinds of stories have been around or, or a soldier who killed a thousand enemies and all of that. This stuff has been there. Not, it's not, we're just better at it. You know, we're more visual with it. Uh, and it's easy for kids to become really obsessed and addicted to this stuff. But you don't have to think of it as something that's against the Quran or Quran versus this. Because if you put it like that, you will lose. <laughs> you will just lose. You're like, oh, don't watch superheroes. Allah told us who the real superheroes are. And what's the child going to do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can I go watch it now? <laughs> That's not going to work. You know, I often tell the story of a, a Sunday school memory I have. Or the teacher next to my, you know, we had this partition. I have a Sunday school group. He has a Sunday school group. And his Sunday school group is like 12, 13 year olds. He goes, he goes to those kids. 
can I tell you what the best story of all is? And they said, what? Transformers? Dragon Ball? Dragon Ball, right? And he goes, no, astaghfirullahaladzim. The story of Yusuf, alayhi salam. Allah says it's the best of all stories. And these kids are just, mm, yeah, okay. Because we are trying to put something down to elevate the value of something else. You see, the only way you can elevate the value of something is on its own merits. Not by criticizing something else. Contra- contradicting something will always make you... You've already accepted defeat that it's superior. Providing an alternative means you're doing something so compelling that somebody loses interest in A. Let me give you a marketing... I come from the business background, so I'll give you a marketing example. If a, a car company is trying to compete with BMW sales and they criticize, oh, our car does this faster than the BMW, this... If their advertising has the BMW in it, what have they already accepted? They've accepted BMW as the benchmark to which they are comparing themselves. They're actually not selling their product. They're hoping less we can move some of their customers over here. You see? In, in the marketplace of ideas, which is what we're living in now, in the marketplace of ideas, the strongest ideas that are presented in the most compelling way will survive. That's just what's going to happen. The question is, if we truly believe Allah's book and Allah's message and the Messenger's teaching, sallallahu alayhi wa are the strongest message then maybe we're not presenting it in the most compelling way. And if we were, then this would rise to the top naturally. It doesn't have to be in competition with something else to rise to the top. Look at, I believe this wholeheartedly because it's a philosophy in my own work. Plenty of people write to me and say, what is your view on X, Y, Z? The differences between Muslims. The, this faction, this faction, this faction. This theology, this theology, this, this translator, this group, this institution, this, that. I have never once in my life commented on anybody. Anybody. Why? Because even if I don't agree with them, me commenting on them makes my subject them. My subject is religion, the Qur'an. And if I can highlight what I understand of the Qur'an, if somebody sees reason in how I'm explaining it, that can stand on its own merits without having it to be put in contrast with somebody else. So we've had this, in the Muslims, we have this refutation culture. Right? So this one refutes this one, this one shows you how this one is wrong, this one. Present your ideas and let them speak for themselves. And Ja'al Haq was Haq al The truth will rise and falsehood will disappear. You know, that's just through the test of time. That's that's in all things, and that's truly with kids' education too. Maybe we just don't know how to teach teach them. Did you watch Avengers Endgame? No. Okay. Why I'm mentioning Avengers because there's a time machine in the when you watch Avengers. If you had to go back 20 years, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> That's personal, man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if I went back 20 years... <laughs> Were you 18 20 years ago? <laughs> I was not 18 20 years ago. I was 21 20 years ago. I'm 41 years old. I say so, you say passing that question. Um, this is my, my, I'm not passing it. I'm telling you right now. I would say a lot of things to my 21-year-old self. I just won't tell you what they are. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I think it's uh, uh, the, the lighting around me. The, cool. the next few questions, we're going to say a word. Yeah. And maybe you can respond what it means to you. As fast as possible. As fast as possible. Oh my God, I have slow brain. I have oh, slow brain. No, no. It's so intimidating. You don't have slow brain. Don't worry. Okay. S- success is? To be content. 
leadership is. To not care what, what anybody else is doing in competition with you. Quran is. Perfection. Islam is. Tranquility. Being a Muslim means to me. To live a meaningful life. Legacy means. To leave something that serves humanity. Cape Town is. Beautiful. My favorite food is. Chicken shawarma. My favorite drink. Water. Besides the Quran, my hobby is. Well, there's not one, but um, basketball, table tennis, the PlayStation 4. <laughs> Lovely. RPGs, third person. Favorite game? Favorite game? Um, I really like Silent Assassin. Uh-huh. I don't know, it's crazy. I know it's disgustingly violent, but <laughs> there's something about the mindless killing. <laughs> no, okay, <I'm> kidding. <laughs> what are you most grateful for? Quran. You mentioned some of your mentors, and uh, I know uh, Dr. Akram Nadvi is also your mentor. Absolutely, yes, yes. Do you have any, any, what does mentorship mean to you? Uh, mentorship means to me that you identify people that have made a genuine contribution in one space and that you can uh, take from them in that space. I don't believe in universal mentorship. In other words, this person is my mentor for all things. I have a mentor that I, I have someone I consider a mentor for fitness. I have someone else I consider a mentor for hadith studies. I have someone else I consider a mentor for mental health issues. Yet someone else I consider, uh, you know, a mentor for children's education. So I, I, it depends on the area of concern. You must identify people that are best suited to mentor you or to help you shape your thoughts about that particular area, right? So I have this selective approach to mentorship. I don't believe in this universal, this person is my mentor in all things kind of um, approach. Maybe let's move the conversation quickly to Bahina Institute. Okay. Um, what was the aim ultimately behind it and the motivation to, to start that foundation? To start it, I just wanted to teach what I've learned because I loved teaching and not have to depend on anybody financially doing it. There was no grand vision. It was just, I really find meaning learning and teaching. And if I can just free myself up enough, financially up enough that I can provide for my family and I can just learn because I love learning and then whatever free time I get, I can also teach, then I've got a meaningful life on my hands. So I put a business plan together so that I could do that, right? And there's some driving principles that I you know, put as the core principles of the company, but that was the main idea. What ended up was every time I... I, I was just doing these small courses. I was very happy with them. And that was my horizon. And then Allah would show me an entirely new horizon all of a sudden. And I'd run after that horizon. And when I would get there, he'd show me an entirely new horizon. And I'd run after that one. And another new horizon would pop up. And so every two or three years, what Bayina is aiming to do evolves. Completely evolves. My, my ultimate goal at one point was to have a campus where Arabic is taught. That happened. And then that is no longer the ultimate goal. Now my ultimate goal is to help campuses around the world revolutionize how Arabic is taught. Right? Um, my ultimate goal, one of my goals was to finish a, a concise commentary on the Quran. Alhamdulillah, that happened. I want to do a detailed commentary on the Quran. And I want to do it in a multifaceted way with not just myself, a research team. So that's, that's underway, alhamdulillah. So, you know, and, and inshallah, if Allah wills, then there are a few other areas that, that are going to get tackled as, as we go. I feel now there needs to be a very concentrated effort made in the study of the Qur'an and its 
its uh, application on mental health um, in the study of Islam, really, but fundamentally first the Quran and its application on mental health because Muslims, wherever I travel, the most common issues are mental health issues. Depression, anxiety, you know, uh, you know uh, personality disorders, all, all sorts of things. And we reduce all of that to waswasa of shaitan and dismiss it, and that's not okay. And it's as if the Qur'an doesn't address mental health, and it does. So that's one area that I'm particularly interested in. Another is, of course, um, uh, you know, translating the Qur'an. Uh, people often you know, give me a copy of translation of different translators and say, what do you think of this translation? And I put it in an awkward position because I don't want to criticize anybody. And I find myself having very strong disagreements with approaches to translation. So my dua is that Allah gives me the, the time and the ability to finish uh, translation of the Qur'an also with some commentary. Do you have a favorite Quranic ayah? No, no. I, I have, um, that changes. Currently, <laughs> I can tell you currently. Currently, <laughs> um, uh, it, currently, I'm back at the one I started with when I was 18. Uh, perhaps Allah will guide me to something closer than this in terms of the right way. And it's the word closer is the most important thing there. Li and hada. The, the thing is, the, the word li in Arabic is used, the preposition is used when you're talking about the end destination. And if you're talking about the end destination, and then you say, I, I pray Allah, or I hope that Allah will guide me all the way to closer. Now that doesn't make sense. Because if you say all the way to, you should be mentioning the destination. But if you say closer, that's just a step. That's not the destination. The, the key to that ayah is getting closer is our destination. There is no such thing as reaching in this life. The only thing you can do is you're closer to the right path than you were yesterday. Right? And so when I first almost knew nothing compared to what I know now, I felt this was the most relevant ayah for me. I don't need to know everything. I just need to get closer tomorrow. Or today I need to just take one more step. And after 20-some years of study, I find myself... In the same exact place, I just pray Allah takes me a step closer than where I am now. You know, you can't ever say, I know this book. You just have to keep praying to Allah. I hope Allah guides me to that which is closer. Again, part of our platform is concentrating on the youth. Uh, when, when you think of youth, especially Muslims and even non-Muslim youth, are you optimistic or pessimistic or how do you, how do you approach youth? I think it's untapped potential. First thing that comes to mind when I think of youth is untapped potential. What I mean by that is, you know, youth have tremendous energy, tremendous vision, tremendous power. Youth changed the world. The backbone of the prophets following was youth. So I saw that these people changed the world map, right? Um, the 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 people we celebrate every every Friday by reciting about them in the Quran are young people. In the fitiyatun, they were young people. And the Prophet says, the greatest fitna, you will stand against it by reciting this surah every Friday, yeah? And this surah is telling us to take inspiration from who? Young people. Who are surrounded by a negative environment. So, young people have tremendous, tremendous, tremendous potential. But, it's like dealing with petroleum. You can use it for amazing fuel and go far, or you can set fires with it too. You see? And it can self-combust. Self can do that too. So it's a delicate thing dealing with youth. It's very easy for them to 
run far away from the religion. It's very easy for them to become whatever young people get involved with, they get completely involved with. So if they're in the party life, they're totally immersed in the party life. If they get religious, they get extremely religious, sometimes even fanatically religious. So, you know, youth have this untapped energy that just goes in extreme directions. Our job is to actually respect that energy and to hope to guide it in a healthy way and so that they don't go into extremes. I know I went into extremes when I was younger, and that's actually a good thing. Young energy and young that, that pushes society forward. But if uh, you, one of the advices I would give myself from the earlier age is if I if I took more advantage of elderly advice at that age, you know, that and I would have saved myself a lot of time. Even though I appreciate all of those experiences, but um, yeah. So for for me, young people, we're we're wasting their intellect away. You know, we're not engaging them intellectually. We're not treating them like the most valuable assets of the ummah. Everybody says we must take care of our youth. We must take care of youth, but we're patronizing them. You know, we're we're not talking to them like they matter, and they do matter. You know. Last question. Today is the last day. Hopefully, inshallah, Allah gives you long umr. What advice? You give us your last thirty-second speech. To the to the listeners. To what? Who, what? who are you guys? <laughs> your loved ones. Please write your loved ones. What, would you uh, give, what advice would you give your loved ones on your deathbed? What advice would I give to my loved ones on my deathbed? Mm-hmm. Be grateful. Always ask for forgiveness, and we do right by people. Ustad Nurman Ali Khan, Jazakla for accepting our invitation. Thank you for your time. We pray that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala blesses you and Barakin all your efforts. Amen. 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 For the people of Cape Town, South Africa, we appreciate. All the work that you have been doing. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, remember us. <laughs> oh, it's kind of hard to forget. So that's it for today's show. We hope you added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guests has inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com. If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please Uh, do contact us and remember feedback is our oxygen so follow us on social media we're on facebook instagram and twitter i hope you enjoyed god bless assalamu alaikum